Friends, I'm so happy that the weather has held out for us today. I'm happy to have you here. You know, when you have a large congregation like we have, uh, with multiple services on a Sunday morning, the opportunity for all of us to be together in one place at one time uh, seemingly comes few and far between. And so I want to encourage you today, part of the reason why we do this is, of course, for the sake of variety, of course, to enjoy the weather outdoors, but even more than those things, it's to celebrate the oneness that we have in the Lord Jesus together as one large church family. And so if you're here today and uh, you're thinking about how you're going to spend the next couple hours after church, I would encourage you uh, to stick around if you're able, uh, to stick around to enjoy some food, to enjoy some yard games and some laughs. I think Bruce is going to have a soccer game over there for those of you that want to pull a hamstring. Um, there's a playground over here. Kyle and the team has some games, some other games back here, Nine Square and things like that. Uh, but more than just doing those things, that you would take some time after our service this morning and engage these people. The people that God has brought you together with, the people that the Lord encourages you by his grace, some people who are your friends, and even greater than that are your spiritual family. Uh, some people who are not yet your friends, but might become your closest friends. And I very much appreciate what Anthony said to us uh, a moment ago. I want to spend some time in the scriptures with you this morning, piggybacking on a couple of things that he said. Because when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and he changes your life, he doesn't just change your eternal life though he does, he also changes your life right now. And that process of change has a number of different axes that are challenging for us. And one of them, and perhaps the most challenging for many of us, is how does our faith in the Lord Jesus change our view of life as it relates to our possessions. Another way to ask the question is, what do you think your life is made up of? And now that you know Jesus, how have those perceptions changed? These are some of the defining questions that every single person needs to ask sooner or later. What am I pursuing with my life, with my affections, with my desires? And what does it reveal about what I believe to be the best parts of life? What does it reveal about what I value the most? And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is approached by a stranger in a crowd and he has a concern about his brother not being fair in dividing the inheritance. And Jesus uses the opportunity to talk about this much greater issue. It's an issue for every single one of us. It's certainly an issue for me. It's the issue of what we pursue and how it reveals whether or not we are truly rich or truly poor in this life. And so follow with me as I read Luke chapter 12. The words are going to be on the screen next to me here. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13, says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, 
Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man approaches Jesus. And he calls him teacher. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is a problem that we've all seen before. And I can tell you, in my role, I've seen it again and again and again. Because when the parents pass away and leave something behind, and if their wishes are unclear, or maybe even if their wishes are clear... The tension that arises in the siblings is significant. And things can get really ugly really fast. And it's astonishing, quite frankly, because everybody's life can be going along just splendidly. No one has a lack of anything that they actually need. But now, all of a sudden, people become willing to tear their families apart, to have some stuff, to have some more, to have some things that they didn't have before. They were just fine. But the temptation is strong. And so you have grown men fighting over crockery. They have no interest in cooking or using it. But the idea of having more is strong. And you have grown women fighting over furniture. They have a house full of furniture already. And yet, they like the couch that mom and dad have just a little bit better. And as a result, tension arises. And when you include land or money or houses, the dividing of inheritance can get even uglier. And so we don't know this man's situation exactly. He wanted Jesus to adjudicate. And in the Jewish world, it wasn't uncommon for people to have a rabbi navigate their conflict of inheritance for them because the Torah outlined a variety of laws regarding this thing. And so the man considers Jesus a spiritual authority. He considers him a rabbi. And he approaches Jesus. And in his approach of Jesus, he most likely doesn't really want Jesus to arbitrate between him and his brother. What he really wants him to do is to decide against his brother. And Jesus will not oblige the request. 
but instead he uses it as an opportunity to reveal what's really happening on the inside of the heart of the man and to highlight one of the greatest struggles that every single one of us has. And so he says in verse 15, to everyone in earshot and to us, a warning. The warning is take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life, your real life, your life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness is the state of always desiring more, irrespective of need. Covetousness is synonymous with greed. Some of your Bible translations might say that. Take care to guard against all kinds of greed. Because the desire to always have more is the temptation of every single generation, and perhaps especially in our generation today. And Jesus says this acquisition of more is not what real life is all about. Now this begs the question. It actually begs two questions. Question number one is what is it about money and things that tempt us into greed? And question number two is if real life isn't found in the pursuit of more, which in some ways is intuitive to us, we, we intuitively want to pursue more, but if Jesus is saying that real life isn't there, then what does this real life consist of? And he tells them a parable to answer these two questions. And since it's short, let me remind you of it. I'll read it quickly again. Just a couple of verses. Jesus says this. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now every parable has some kind of twist or a surprise that helps us to see the application that Jesus intends. And here, the surprise is that this man has a perfectly common or natural dilemma that is before him. He's done nothing wrong to achieve the success that he has. He hasn't cheated anybody. His motive to that point had been pure. The growth of his crop and the surplus doesn't cause him to store more in an attempt to take advantage of some kind of market manipulation or price increase later. This is a natural problem, and everyone wants this type of problem. You want this type of problem. I want this type of problem. My client base is expanding so much that I need to hire more salesmen to meet the need. It's that kind of problem. 
My work is going so well that every year they give me another raise and I'm getting larger bonuses upon bonuses. And in fact, I've had more money than I've ever had before. My crops are yielding so much that I don't have any place to put it all. I'm gonna have to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. If you're the one in that situation, you are saying, wow, God has surely blessed my hard work. God has surely blessed my business. God has surely blessed my family. Because intuitively, we all want to have more. And when God gives us that more, we therefore assume that this is good for us and that we are being blessed by God. But what we see here is that the attitude and the desire that having more causes in the man becomes the sinful piece of the story. Look at verse 19. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So what should you do? Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. A couple minutes ago, we asked the question, what is it about money that leads us to be tempted with greed? And here we get a glimpse. Because we know that money is simply a mechanism to get what we value. Money in and of itself holds little or no inherent value. Piece of paper with a president picture on it and a number up top of it isn't worth anything in and of itself. Small coins have very little inherent value to them. But money isn't what is valuable. Money helps us get what is valuable to us. And in this case, what is most valuable to the man? Himself. When the man says, I am going to use what I have to eat, drink, be merry, and relax, what does that indicate about what is most valuable to him? What is most valuable to the man is himself. I wonder what your use of money indicates about what you value. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I was thinking about this this week and reflecting on my own life and being convicted in my own soul about the things that my money sometimes says about what I value. And I was thinking about all of us in the same regard. And I was thinking about this perpetual struggle that we have in this world in which we have just this incredible love affair with things and having more. And uh, it caused me to wonder, what, what do most people spend their money on? And there's a number of statistics out there about the average American. Now, I know, I know that most of you are far above average. 
But this is what the average American spends their money on. The average American household spends approximately $61,000 per year. The majority of that, of course, is spent on housing and transportation and food, the three major costs. And if you have children, the old saying goes, every kid you have is a Ferrari you don't. I think that might be true. But beyond that, it's estimated that Americans spend approximately $18,000 a year on non-essential items. And so the average American household spends approximately 10 to 15% of their annual income on vacations. 10 to 15%. Don't get any ideas, Amy, wherever you are. The average American household spends about $900 a year on pets, which results in a $74 billion a year industry. The average American household spends 1% of their income on alcohol. And since many households don't drink, the average for the ones that do is probably more 2 to 3% of their annual income on alcohol. And the average American household spends about 6% of their income on eating out, which is only slightly lower than the amount that they spend on food at home. I wonder what your credit card statement says about what you value the most. I think of the prayer upon reflecting on this passage, Dear Lord, I have been rereading the record of the rich businessman and his wrong choice wasn't so obvious to me. But it has set me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. And if he was rich, then what am I? You know, it's interesting that money in our midlife points to what we value. In a graduation commencement a number of years ago, James Dobson once talked about our current love affair with climbing the ladder and gaining more and more and more, and he said this. He said, it's, an it's important to use your talents in life. It's important. But if that's the end of it, there is a disillusionment that sets in between the ages of 35 to 50. This is commonly called the midlife crisis. And I believe that it is more of a phenomenon of a wrong value system than it is of an age group in which it occurs. Because all of the sudden, you realize the ladder you've been climbing is leaning up against the wrong wall. You know, money in midlife points to what we value. And our use of money in retirement points to what we value, maybe even more so. Because when it comes to saving for retirement and spending for retirement and achieving the American dream, that's where the story of this man and a hard-working life and the large barns is in some ways told. 
If I keep getting more, he thinks, I can live for myself. And this is where our culture simultaneously helps us and lies to us. Because we know that it's a good thing to save for your retirement. It's a good thing to be prudent with your money. It's a good thing to be able to put money away so that when you are no longer able to work, you don't have to rely on somebody else. It's even good as you gain more years to have the ability to slow down, to have periods of relaxation, and to enjoy your latter years. However, this is also where the culture lies to us. It lies to us because it says that the main use of your money is to value yourself above all things, especially when you retire. And so Jesus concludes in the parable by saying, in verse 20, God said to the man, fool, this night your soul is required of you and these things that you've prepared, whose will they be? Here's the warning and here's the main idea. The warning is guard yourself because your life doesn't consist of the abundance of possessions. So guard yourself against this greed. The main idea of the parable is this. Wealth towards self leads to poverty toward God. Wealth towards self leads to poverty toward God. The parable is not primarily about wealth. It's about wealth that is solely directed toward self. And there is a difference. The man heaps up great possession. He assumes that he is secure because of those possessions. He believes that his property is his own instead of seeing it as God's property that is used through him. And his mindset regarding his things is toward himself. But wealth toward self leads toward poverty toward God. And Jesus applies it to all of us when he says, so it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Guys, I really want to be rich toward God. <laughs> Don't you? Don't you want to be rich toward God? And it's interesting that in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell us specifically what it means, what steps you can take to be rich toward God. But when you take a step back and you look at the totality of his ministry, you start to get a glimpse. And the meaning in this passage of being rich toward God is displayed in the plain contrast. And so let me give you four brief statements of what it means to be rich toward God, especially as it relates to our struggle with possessions. Being rich toward God is the opposite of storing treasures up for yourself. That's the plain contrast of the parable. Being rich toward God, and this I think is the most important 
If you take nothing else away today, take this. Being rich toward God is finding him to be of greatest value in your life. And this is the struggle because the only way that you have to grow in seeing God in majesty and power and infinite value, value that is so much more desirable to you than a new car, value that is so much more desirable to you than the next exceptional vacation. The only way that you begin to see him more clearly in this regard is to learn more and more about him by seeking him in his word and learn more and more about him by seeking to follow him in obedience in your life. Even when you don't feel like it and even when it doesn't make the most sense to you. Because when you know him and you obey him, you will begin to confer the proper value to him. He will continue to become supreme in your life. And when you begin to love him more than you love him today, when you begin to love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, when you love God like that, you will treasure him supremely over all things. You will be like Paul who says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, when you fix your eyes in this life on material things, it will be material things that you strive for. When you focus your affection on houses and cars and good food and great vacations, you show that you treasure above all things yourself. But when you fix your eyes on the Lord, when you show your gaze in his direction, when you point to the Lord Jesus who forgave you on the cross, who shows himself to you to be sufficient for all things, your greatest need of your sin and your intermediate needs of the material world who loves you with an everlasting love, when you fix your eyes on him, you will treasure him. And when you treasure God above all things, you will handle your money differently. And so what are you fixing your eyes on? Where does your gaze rest? Because wealth toward self leads to poverty toward God. But being rich toward God changes how you value everything else. 
Being rich toward God is the opposite of storing treasures for yourself. Being rich toward God means that you find him to be of greatest value in your life. Being rich toward God means that I bless others with my overflow. I grow not only in loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I also grow in loving my neighbor as myself. And how that applies to your money is that I seek to make my excess a blessing for other people. We give faithfully to the Lord and to his work through our church, and we look for opportunities to be generous to those around us and to bless them as well. And lastly, being rich toward God means that you fight and that you trust. That you fight and that you trust. We have to fight for contentment today. I have to fight for contentment every single week of my life because the messages telling me I'm, I don't have enough are pervasive. We have to fight for contentment. And we can be generous and grow in generosity with our excess because we choose to trust to trust the Lord, to trust that God not only will meet my needs today, but that out of my excess, I can be generous because I trust that God will also meet my needs tomorrow and the next day and even in retirement. And so we fight and we trust. Several years ago, Construction workers were laying a foundation for a building outside the city of Pompeii. And they found under the surface a corpse of a woman who must have been fleeing from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. But she was caught in the rain of hot ash. The woman's hands clutched jewels which were well-preserved, even after years and years of the body's decay. She had the jewels, but death had stolen it all. And that's the bottom line in life. Worldly treasure is not a wise investment because you can't take it with you. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred for his faith, understood this reality and one time wrote in his journal, a person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Wealth towards self leads to poverty toward God. But being rich toward God means that we value him above all things. And so I close and just ask you the simple question. As you think about this parable of Jesus and as you think about yourself and what you value and where your resources are allocated, what changes might you make to let the gospel reflect in your material life? Because if you're anything like me, you hear a message like this and you think about it in the moment and it stings a little bit. It hurts there a little bit and you start to wonder, but it becomes kind of complicated and kind of hard. And as time goes on, Monday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon comes along and it's just easier to say, oh, I was challenged by that, but I'm just going to set it aside. 
but what changes might you make to express your true values? Because this is, Jesus says, real life. (laughs) And this is the greatest life. And friends, I want us to be rich toward God together. Let's pray. Father, make us rich toward you all the more, we ask. God, help us loosen our clutches on our material things. God, grow in us a deeper affection and desire and value of you. God, help us to see the reality around us with greater clarity that you are supreme in all that you do and that your ways are best and that we can trust you for our needs and we can follow you faithfully with our wealth. God, we confess that so often we have not done this well. I confess that so often I have not done this well. And today we ask for the ongoing change that your spirit does in our heart and our mind and through our actions. And we pray together, longing to be rich in you. Amen and amen.